Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello to all of those joining us. I'm Jesse Bangoa with Platinum Performance, and today you are in for a great discussion on a topic that impacts writers and veterinarians, and it's never something that either wants to hear, and that's colitis. Where there's bad news, like a colitis diagnosis, luckily there's also good news, and that's the tremendous advancement we've seen in the understanding of this condition, the diagnosis, rapid treatment, and equally as important, the recovery. I'm so happy to be your host today, but with me are three people with quite a few more letters behind their names. Thank goodness. Uh, Three veterinarians who each in their own right are boarded internal medicine specialists and experts in handling colitis cases. They're going to paint a thorough picture for us as far as how far we've come and where we are now. And we are going to introduce them all. We have Dr. Rodney Belgrave, who is first at the table. Ladies usually come first here, but in honor of being the only and very brave man of the pack today, I'm going to introduce Dr. Rodney Belgrave. Uh, He's the president of Mid-Atlantic Equine Medical Center in New Jersey. He's authored numerous papers published in peer-reviewed journals, and he's a frequent presenter industry contributor and dedicated, he's dedicated so much of his time and talents to the betterment of veterinary medicine. Um, Next to the table, we have Dr. Piper Norton, and she has earned her veterinary degree from LSU prior to completing a residency at Texas A&M, and she's remained in the great state of Texas as a private practitioner. Dr. Norton also serves on the board of directors for TIVA, the Texas Equine Veterinary Association. And Dr. Norton, I'll bring you in for one second because I have a very important question for you. You have both LSU and Texas A&M. on your pedigree and the Tigers beat my beloved Texas Aggies this year. Who were you rooting for? No pressure. Oh my goodness. I loved the Aggies. I they actually grew on me a ton, but when you're born a tiger, you're always a tiger. Okay. Well, <laughs> she's great folks. So I guess we'll let her stay regardless, but, but okay, we'll, we'll see. We'll have another matchup this season. Um, and last, but so far from least, uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Diana Hassel. Uh, hello, Dr. Hassel. Hello, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Dr. Hassel has a long history with colitis, both in a research setting and also in her clinical work at Colorado State University, where she has and continues to uh, make an incredible impact on the profession. So thank you all for being here and let's dive right in. Uh, Dr. Norton, hot seat, first up. Um, Can you give us a lay of the land and paint us a picture We've got colitis. We're dealing with an intestinal disturbance, uh, infectious versus non-infectious, a range of symptoms, and also several options when it comes to etiology. Um, What are we dealing with and who are the bad actors? We've got salmonella, C. diff, E. coli, and the elusive colitis X or the unknown. So if you would paint a picture for us um, and help us gain a little bit of an understanding. Perfect. Well, I guess to start by painting a picture, I would describe the horses I'm walking up to them. Usually these horses are pretty sick. 
Um, they're very depressed. They're not eating well, um, oftentimes running a fever, especially if it's an infectious etiology. Um, and you can just tell that, um, even by looking at them, that they are depressed. Um, and so in my head, when I'm walking up to them and, you know, I see that this horse has some liquid stool on its rear end, um, or has some toxic mucous membrane, stuff like that. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to see if I can figure out, is this an infectious, infectious etiology, a toxic etiology, or maybe even mechanical like sand. Um, and so all those things are going through my head as I walk up and I'm trying to decipher based on the lab work and based on looking at the, at the patient, um, which one of those categories this horse fits into. And I think talking to the owners and getting some history really helps with that too. Um, while you're waiting on the diagnostics, because oftentimes it'll take a couple of days for your diagnostics to come back. So you have to start treatment in the meantime. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, I was curious, how about the eosinophilic colitis and enteritis? What's the difference and what are you dealing with there? Absolutely. So, um, when I have an eosinophilic colitis, I'm thinking more inflammatory bowel disease usually, and those may be hypersecretory They're, They may have some diarrhea associated with them, but typically you don't see the same, um, illness, um, associated with those horses. Those horses are more weight loss and diarrhea. Um, and so that fits into its own category of immune, um, immune mediated bowel disease, um, or inflammatory bowel disease. And, um, those, those are always in my list of differentials as well. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, so colitis is obviously a major concern when you're treating a patient for another condition and when either antibiotics or NSAIDs are coming into play. And there's obviously a critical time and place for these drugs, but we now know that they can have a significant impact on the microbiome, on the gut microbiota, and not only that, but the intestinal mucosa. Um, Dr. Hassel, I'm going to point this at you. Would you walk us through this and what you're considering when you're treating a patient and what's happening in the gut when these drug classes are being introduced? How are you keeping the gut in mind and hopefully preventing this disruption and a potential case of colitis? That's a great question. Um, certainly there's some uh, wonderful new research out describing changes to the microbiota in response to non-steroidal inflammatory, anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, that's kind of newer research, but we've known for quite a while since some of the early uh, microbiota um, data that came out um, in the early, you know, kind of 2010-ish era that antibiotics have a, a very profound effect on just the regular bacterial populations within um, the equine gut and all, all mammals actually. And so um, they, they really set up this dysbiosis, which occurs and we like to blame colitis on one organism a lot of times, but the reason we often don't really actually figure out um, what organism is causing the problems is probably more of a generalized dysbiosis that occurs. And then you may have one particular pathogen just take over, um, for example, salmonella or, or clostridium or something like that. And so um, really uh, critical in terms of uh, prevention is really the, the ideal because if you have an, a, like an antimicrobial induced colitis, those, those can be 
quite deadly. And so um, at least I can tell you what we do here um, at Colorado State is the vast majority of our horses that we end up putting on antibiotics, especially the high-risk GI cases. So surgical colics for sure, um, almost pretty much every single one ends up going on platinum balance right off the bat. Amazing. Thank you for that. You know, and one thing that um, that most veterinarians know of when they think of platinum performance is biosponge. And, and you know, this is not, this is not a, a webinar to talk solely on our, our formulas, but biosponge obviously comes into play significantly with colitis cases. So can, um, I'll open it up to Dr. Hassel's a follow-up question. Then I'd love to get your thoughts to, uh, Dr. Norton. Um, you know, how, in terms of, of treating these patients, are you using biosponge and then transitioning into balance is balance used as more of a repopulation for the gut. And, you know, how are you using those in conjunction or one after the other? Great question. Um, and thank you for bringing that up because, um, I really, uh, I really rely on biosponge quite a bit in my um, uh, post-operative cases in particular, and then of course, colitis. And um, so the way I use it and any uh, surgical colic, I actually start by putting it into the gut lumen um, if I perform a pelvic flexure enterotomy. And I love that because it just, it's already in place. And this is really particularly valuable for horses with inflammation of the large colon. So horses with, um, we rarely cut colitis, but once in a while you get one that you end up cutting and it, you feel like maybe it was a colitis brewing and they had a lot of severe colic signs. That's pretty rare, but um, certainly I would use uh, biosponge in those cases, but any volvulus or any case sand colics, um, anything where um, I'm doing an anaerotomy, a severe impaction is another one to those horses get a lot of irritation to the gut. They get some, uh, basically a leaky gut um, post-operatively. And I think they really benefit from immediate exposure. And then I'll follow up in those higher risk cases where we're worried about some post-operative diarrhea. I definitely go ahead and tube them usually just once daily with BioSponge and put them on um, platinum balance as well. Also in our in-hospital patients that aren't colics, um, if any early signs of soft manure, um, usually these might be horses on antibiotics for an orthopedic condition or whatever it might be. Um, those horses, I think the earlier you can get a dose of biosponge into them. Excellent. Thank you for that. And how about you, Dr. Norton? Um, in addition to those cases that, um, maybe antibiotic induced or, um, starting to get endotoxemic. I find that biosponge helps a lot too in cases that are say severely anemic and they might have some GI hypoxia. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Belgrave, I'm going to turn the next question to you. Um, Dr. Belgrave. Uh, hello. Dr. Belgrave is a little late to the party this morning because he is, um, he was saving lives. So treating, treating a, a, a critical full. So welcome. Um, and First I want to the year. First fall of the year. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry for the fall, but there you go. You're, <laughs> off, you're off and running. Um, I want to turn this question to you, Dr. Belgrave. Sure. Um, you know, as a follow-up to that, we, we've been talking about antibiotics and NSAIDs. And, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on cases where the horse is receiving an NSAID, uh, say they're getting bute or phenylbutazone. Um, a meprazole is often co 
co-prescribed as a preventive with the goal of decreasing ulcer risk, correct? Um, but can that to actually become a concern with the gut and a potential intestinal complication like colitis? Yeah, potentially, because if you're suppressing um, acid release, um, you know, acid's there for a reason. Gastric acid is is there for a reason. And um, certainly there is an increased risk of, you know, certain nefarious organisms bypassing um, you know that gastric barrier and getting into lower parts of the intestinal tract um, if gastric acid production and release is suppressed and um, because that obviously can have a, a negative impact on you know some of the organisms that are ingested so um, you know theoretically there's always some concern uh, for that with prolonged use of, um, you know, proton pump inhibitors. Um, And uh, I don't know that I have, in a clinical setting, appreciated an issue, but theoretically, yes, there's a potential issue there. Okay, good to know. I was curious, thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Norton, I'm gonna bring you in as a follow-up to that and you know, really the three of you are so excellent at practicing with a whole horse approach. So in these cases, what else needs to be considered with a colitis case? We're so focused on, on the gut. Um, but tell me about the importance of taking that whole horse approach and you're treating the intestine, but are you taking the kidneys into consideration for instance, and what are you doing to work toward a positive outcome and ensure that you're not getting secondary issues? Absolutely. Um, yes, the entire horse needs to be taken into account. Um, the amount that the horse is eating or intaking will help decrease the catabolic state that these horses get into. Um, you also have to worry about, are their feet okay? Are they going to develop signs of laminitis? Um, are their kidneys okay? Um, all this polypharmacy that um, we tend to do on every single one of these endotoxemic cases, you have to take every part of the, um, every part of the organs into concern or into um, consideration and make sure that all of your drugs are not interacting with the other ones. Um, and so, yes, it is, it's quite a balancing act. <laughs> Absolutely. As always. Right. Um, Dr. Belgrave, I'm going to turn this back to you for a moment. Can you talk us through clinical versus subclinical cases of colitis and what both the horse owner and veterinarian can look out for in terms of the subclinical stage that may help catch these cases before they turn mission critical? And do they always escalate? They don't always escalate. So the clinical cases are, they're very obvious. Um, and they have fulminant diarrhea, um, you know, to varying degrees, just in terms of the consistency of their manure. Um, so those cases are very obvious, uh, easy to diagnose, um, you know, in addition to the diarrhea, you know, they may have, you know, fever, sometimes they may exhibit some signs, some signs of colic, uh, as well to go along with that. Um, so those cases are pretty clear cut and uh, most of the horses that we have that come in, we're 
surrounded by a lot of racetracks. Um, and I'd say most of the horses that come from racetrack are on some form of antibiotic therapy when they develop colitis. Um, and then you also see cases of colitis that are somewhat seasonal. We have a lot of Potomac horse fever um, in this region. And we tend to see that from late June through August. Um, and those cases are not always clinical. Well, they may be clinical from the standpoint of having a fever, but they don't all develop diarrhea um, or the appearance or manifestation of the diarrhea may be delayed. Um, and we also tend to see that with the coronavirus as well. Um, we've had a lot of cases of, of coronavirus this winter. Um, and I'd say the majority of them have had pretty much formed manure, but they presented um, for a fever and, you know, subsequent very low white blood cell counts. So, um, so yeah, just circling back to clinical, subclinical cases, I'd say the majority are clinical, um, but we do see, um, you know, the occasional infectious condition um, like Potomac or coronavirus that will, uh, you know, will not have um, you know, the obvious signs that the owner or trainer might pick up, which is, is diarrhea. So. Yeah. Coronavirus. God, that's such a foreign term these days. So weird. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Hassel, I'm going to, I'm going to point this back at you. You know, we have had quite a bit of advancement in how we understand and treat colitis in the past, you know, decade, two decades or so. These horses have a shot at survival these days where it used to be um, a little dicey to say the least. Um, what are some of the major advancements that we have seen? We've talked about biosponge, obviously, but what are some of the advancements and the changes in protocol, you know, uh, kind of being reared under Dr. Doug Herthel out here? I know that um, there was a shift in thinking in terms of how quickly you get these horses back on feed after call, you know, after you've been dealing with colitis as soon as you can. And, um, there's, uh, fecal transplantation and there's, there's quite a few other things that have been considered and have been researched. So where are we now and where are we pointed? Yeah, well, I still, I think, I think colitis is one of those, um, one conditions where, we still have a long way to go um, because some of them you just can't help. Like they come to you and they're just um, really already um, at a point where they're, they're on their way out. And so um, really I'd say the biggest advances are with respect to, and I don't have a lot of experience personally with the fecal transplantation. I used to do that a lot. Um, I'd say when I was an isolation technician back in the eighties and nineties, um, we had a, a, a phase of that, then it kind of went away and now it's coming back and we're actually getting some data now from, uh, from microbiota, um, analyses and so forth. So it does look to be a promising potential therapy for horses, working out the details of, um, you know, how you can optimize, the effects of fecal transformation is, is, a, is a great thing to do um, as well in the, in the near future, hopefully through some good research. 
Our biggest advances are probably in the supportive care. So really uh, most colitis are going to be um, primarily um, based on or need lots and lots of fluid support. Um, you know, you're going to have to be looking at other organs, uh, other dysfunction of kidneys and so forth when they have uh, hypovolemia and um, providing support in those ways and, and monitoring these horses uh, in such a way that we can address any deficiencies that develop is, is also critical. And then, of course, we have the, the probiotic supplements um, that are um, uh, quite voluminous <laughs> and available to uh, clients at this point. Um, again, more research is needed for many of those. Absolutely. You know, as with so much of, of equine veterinary medicine, there's a translational aspect to it. So we're learning from our human counterparts and vice versa. Sometimes the equine veterinary medical field is ahead. Sometimes the human medical field is ahead. Is colitis at all one of those areas? I know that with the, you know, the fecal transplant type of, of um, scenario, that's something that's going on in both species. Um, but have we, have we been able to learn back and forth in this area or is, is that something that's still emerging here? I think that is uh, definitely still an emerging field. I think that the humans are, human uh, medicine is probably a, a step ahead of us um, with respect to the volume of research and data and the numbers um, that they have to support various therapies and to really look at intricacies of particular types of or underlying etiologies of, col of uh, colitis and so forth. Um, I think we're almost a little better at the diagnosis part and early assessment. We've always been pretty good at that. Um, but, uh, but I think um, in general, yeah, we can, we can definitely learn from each other that the GI tract, um, unfortunately, is, is quite different between the horse and, and the human. And so um, using a lot of the human probiotic products, for example, may not be uh, the best choice for the horse. For example, uh, clostridial organisms are one of the most abundant bacterial species within the equine gut. Um, we know there's pathogenic versions of that, but perhaps um, it's one of the healthiest uh, components of a good, uh, a healthy equine microbiome is actually these various clostridial organisms, just not the pathogenic ones. Well, being uh, so far advanced on diagnostics with patients that can't talk to you says a lot about the quality of the veterinarians working on this. So that's good. Um, Dr. Belgrave, I'm going to point this next one at you and ask you to talk a little bit about colitis and foals specifically, and if there's any special considerations that we're dealing with in foals and young horses. Um, I, I, you know, I'd say from, from a treatment perspective, uh, you know, it, it, it's still, the emphasis is really around supportive care. And um, so, you know, in, in all of these cases, whether they're foals, adults, um, you know, supporting them, um, you know, fluid-wise to make sure they maintain their hydration um, and, you know, don't run into any secondary complications like renal insufficiency and whatnot. Um, you know, that, that's still the centerpiece, regardless of the age of the horse. 
Um, you know, with the bulls, there's a little bit of a different dynamic because they're so much more prone to developing sepsis, um, secondary to um, when they have diarrhea and there's compromise to their gut. Um, and that increases the risk of organisms being translocated across the gut, then becoming septic, and then subsequently developing septic joints, uh, you know, which we know all foals like to get. So, um, so I, I'd say that the main difference is, you know, probably revolves around the potential for sepsis. And so in foals, when they have diarrhea, um, you know, we do tend to cover them with broad spectrum antibiotic therapy, which isn't always the case with an adult. So with, with adults, again, many cases are antibiotic associated. And so we might withhold the administration of broad spectrum antibiotics unless they're severely neutropenic or leukopenic and are at risk of developing you know, secondary bacterial infection, whereas in the foals, uh, almost universally, regardless of the cause, we we do tend to cover them with with broad spectrum antibiotics to kind of circumvent and prevent any of those secondary complications. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And you know, as a follow up to the full question, uh, Dr. Hassel, I want to point this back at you about BioSponge specifically. Um, it's been used successfully for a long time in foals, but there's some things to keep in mind in terms of waiting 12 hours after the foal first nurses the mare to administer biosponge. Uh, why is that important? Yeah, um, great question. And um, I did at one point do this study looking at binding of um, various um, agents to um, biosponge, and particularly looking at endotoxin and um, I think there were also some really nice studies looking at the clostridial toxins as well. And it, um, it's highly effective at that more so than um, other anti-diarrheals like Pepto-Bismol and so forth. Um, we also looked at specifically colostral antibody um, binding, and we did find that the biosponge bound to it. And now, so I don't know what in vitro, if that means that they're not going to absorb any of those um, antibodies, but I certainly would uh, recommend waiting that period where at least they've um, absorbed their antibodies in that uh, initial window after birth, just in case. <laughs> right. That's, that's typically how we go. Just in case let's wait the 12 yeah. hours on that. It's important. Um, okay, perfect. And, you know, Dr. Norton, I'm going to turn to you real quick. And we talk with a lot of clients at Platinum um, that are dealing with fecal water syndrome. Um, and the horse has nicely formed manure, but so much liquid uh, that comes with it. And it's so frustrating for horse owners. Um, could these potentially be mild or subclinical cases of colitis? What are we dealing with here? And how are you approaching these cases? Um, I do agree. I think those could potentially be mild cases of colitis that are maybe just more subclinical um, and dysbiosis, namely. Um, one of the main things that I look at whenever I see increased fecal water syndrome is what does the particle size look like? Because the majority of the ones that I see are due to poor dentition um, 
and they aren't chewing their particle size enough. And so the particle sizes are really long that they're passing in their feces and they're dumping in more water to get those through. Um, But there are the ones who are, you know, very well-maintained show horses that have had amazing dental work every year and have small particle size, but they still maintain this fecal water syndrome. And so, yes, I do agree. I think when we learn more about the microbiome, we will probably see that those are some, some cases of dysbiosis. Excellent. Yeah. We've, you know, at at platinum, what we've been um, recommending to support those cases is typically platinum GI with a, with an extra dose of platinum balance. Um, Obviously with poor dentition, that's not going to have, you know, an impact if that's the case, but with the probiotics there, do you have any comment on that? Dr. Hassel or Dr. Belgrave? I, um, I don't have a lot of experience with um, trying to manage those cases. So, but maybe Dr. Belgrave can, um, can comment, but yes, I think, I think that's a good initial approach for sure. Sorry, Jason, just say the question again. Um, you know, we were talking about fecal water syndrome yeah. and I was going to see if you had a comment on, on that. Um, and I was saying at platinum, what obviously the nutritional intervention is our world, right. but what, what we typically recommend there is uh, platinum GI with an additional dose of platinum balance to get the probiotics right. and prebiotics in there to support the gut. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Norton was referring to poor dentition too. And I was saying yeah. that wasn't going to really have an impact there, but, um, to support the gut. So I was going to see if you had a comment on, on the fecal water syndrome and yeah. how you approach it. Yeah. Yeah, those cases are, I mean, they're very frustrating to deal with. Um, and yeah, I agree with Dr. Norton. You know, we, I tend to see it in older horses. Um, you know, they, yes, they don't masticate and start the digestive process very well in their oral cavity. And so, you know, their, you know, their feces are, you know, very stemmy and there's a lot of fecal water that, that kind of comes along with it. Um, you know, I, I do recommend, you know, putting them on, on probiotics and, um, you know, those, yeah, those cases are, you know, they're, they're tough, tough to manage, especially the ones that, um, you know, where we're attributing the excess fecal water to, you know, dental problems at the start of the elementary track, um, you know, a lot of those older horses, you can't really do much about the dentition. And so um, it just creates a lot of difficulty in, in, in getting the, the fecal water resolved. Um, for the ones that, that aren't associated with any dental issues, uh, I usually find that getting them on, um, there's a lot of platinum balance. Um, getting them on platinum balance is, is beneficial. And yeah, we may have to, Sometimes we'll we'll throw in other um, you know other supplements as well. It's not so much a clinical issue as it is an aesthetic issue <laughs> um, for for the horse. Well, the horse doesn't care, but for the owner. Um, and so, yeah, you know, try our best to to get it resolved. But it is it is a frustrating condition to deal with, regardless of the cause. You bet. And it it might be on the fringe of the subject matter today, but it's sure one that we hear a lot about. So, um, well, thank you for that. And, you know, to, to sort of start to round us out, what I want to ask each of you is like, like we've been talking about, we've, we've come a long way in colitis, but we undoubtedly have a long way to go as well. What do you wish that 
veterinarians knew that you've seen success with in your own practice that you've become familiar with in the research? What do you wish that more veterinarians knew when they're uh, encountering colitis cases? And Dr. Norton, I'll start with you. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> that's hard. Um, so I guess I would say early intervention is the key and the quicker that we can get on these cases. And I'm much more of a person who is proactive than reactive. Um, I would rather over-treat a little bit than under-treat um, and try to see if we could get these resolved quickly before they become bad. Dr. Belgrave? I will echo that sentiment in that, um, you know, I would rather see a horse admitted on the early side, um, even if it means, you know, it goes home in a day or two. Um, you can never treat these horses too early. And I've seen many just arrive too late. So uh, early intervention is key to success. And then also just the supportive care, you know, that we give these horses to try and, you know, ameliorate the effects of the endotoxemia that comes along with the disease. Um, laminitis is such a huge issue um, or secondary complication that we see with these cases, especially horses with Potomac horse fever. Um, sometimes, you know, it really doesn't matter what we do from a supportive standpoint. Um, you know, it seems like, you know, those horses will develop laminitis regardless. So, um, but yeah, early intervention is the key, uh, aggressive, supportive care. And um, I think that that gives the horse and owner best chance of success. Okay. Dr. Hassel. Yeah, I, I'm going to probably reiterate some of that as well. Uh, really critical to treat these horses as early as possible. For me, the most important thing is maybe educating clients um, to recognizing um, any signs of colitis very early so that that treatment can be instituted and very, in a very expedient process um, to maximize their chance of success. And also educating clients about um, probiotics and how they're not all created equal and how many of them are not actually what's on the label is not what's in the product. And so, you know, they're just, they might be going with um, a, a good one they got a great deal on or something they read about in a magazine. But I think they really need to um, think about educating clients on quality of products and ensuring that they're actually getting what they're, um, what they're uh, supposed to be getting. So it's a, it's a good thing to keep in mind for not only what we feed our horses, but what we take ourselves to. Um, and you know, what are, uh, what are those signs that a horse owner should be looking for that a veterinarian should be educating their horse owners to look for, um, that can perhaps help catch these cases, uh, as early as possible. Yeah. So what I'm just thinking of, I'm just thinking about colitis in general. So a horse that um, starts to, if it, if it typically doesn't have abnormal manure and it passes some cow pie manure, just keeping a closer eye on those cases. If there's not like a reason, like they got on a trailer ride and they're all excited or, you know, um, something that it is commonly associated with 
having a loose stool. Um, if they're in their stall and there's, you know, a, a, a cowpine manure or something, that's something they should pay attention to and maybe just um, bring it up with their veterinarian early rather than waiting a night and having six things again <laughs> of diarrhea against their uh, stall walls by the time um, the veterinarian actually sees the horse. Right. Not a good situation for so many reasons. Um, but thank you for that. What have I forgotten? Is there anything else that you all would want veterinarians to know um, in terms of where we are or where we're headed in the future with colitis? Uh, for me, early referral is the key. Yeah. And I'm not saying that just because I work in a referral hospital. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, for the benefit of the horse and, um, you know, like I said, I've, I've seen cases arrive, you know, just a day too late in, in a lot of instances. And, uh, um, you know, just, uh, you know, paying attention to what the horse is telling you and, um, you know, being proactive is, is the key for a lot of these cases. Right. So many things in life, sooner is better. Um, and you know, I've really taken away that whole horse approach too, from what you all have been saying is making sure that like so many other things that you treat, that you're not treating just the condition, it's the entire horse. So I like that, uh, approach a lot and it's all, I mean, it's, it's an interesting condition. It's a diagnosis that no veterinarian ever wants to, uh, to land on. Um, but veterinary medicine has definitely advanced significantly in this realm, um, and these cases now have a better shot for sure. And I, I hope to see that in, in be enhanced in the future as we move forward. And I want to thank each of you for being here with me today um, and for shedding some light on, on the latest and what we know and where we're going with colitis. And these cases are in excellent hands with, um, with the three of you and so many of your colleagues. And I certainly hope that everyone joining us has taken away just as much from our conversation as I have. And thank you to Dr. Belgrave, to Dr. Hassel, and to Dr. Norton, uh, three exceptional veterinarians and researchers and longtime friends of ours at Platinum Performance. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to be here with me to talk. So from myself and all of us at Platinum, thank you for joining us. And I hope you're back again. Bye for now.